important to understand that just because agriculture allowed there to be many more humans and agriculture allowed society to develop in many ways does not mean that it was fun for most people for most of human history. To understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. So, hello, Rob. How are you this week? Ah, uh, not bad, not bad. Rory, how are things going with you? Uh, things are going okay. I see you're back in New York. How's it treating you? Ah, uh, treating me well. It's, uh, I think July was hotter than August. So, uh, oh so far, goodness, so good. You're having a heat wave, aren't you? Nope, nope, no, we're good. We're good. No, this is... Uh, good work. I mean, compared to the July and June heat waves, we're doing fine. So... Okay. Climate change, solved. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Good, good to hear. So what would you like to talk about? I want to talk about agriculture, Rory, and how it sucks. Oh, why? What's it done now? Agriculture is, of course, very important. Uh, every I just had a couple cashews before I sat down here. Uh, everything in human life and society is only possible because of agriculture and because of the agricultural revolution that we experienced at some point between nine and 15,000 years ago, depending on who you ask. That's a, I think there's been multiple, is it seven uh, green revolutions? Oh, gosh, I, I, that, that sounds entirely possible. I'm not familiar <laughs> with that formulation, but I, I, I believe it. I believe it. But important to understand that just because agriculture allowed there to be many more humans and agriculture allowed society to develop in many ways does not mean that it was fun for most people, for most of human history. Uh, I wanted to talk about agriculture and how just awful and soul-crushing it can be as a way of life uh, because of the kinds of... I'm not sure where I ran into it over the past couple of weeks, but it's always something uh, sort of in the degrowth vein of things. People like, uh, but also beyond that, this this romanticization, romanticization of the life before our current industrialized economy. And I think it's just nuts. I've always known that it's just nuts. Um, but uh, I've had it reinforced over the years by a couple books. book that we're probably going to talk about the most today is James C. Scott's Against the Gray. Uh, James C. Scott is a very well-known and respected, I guess, you know, I, would, would he technically be an anthropologist? What would he be? He is a political scientist and anthropologist. He's written a series of very impressive books. Uh, so he was already well-established before in 2017, uh, put out this book called Against the Grain, which really confirmed a lot of things that I had been thinking about and expanded upon them immensely. And But we were basic hunter-gatherers, then we collected some grains, we all learned from Henry VIII, and now we have AI. That's how things work, isn't it? Yep, that's how it works. That That is human history. <laughs> uh, and I think in part, uh, he he's sort of rebelling against uh, exactly that kind of sort of progressive... Uh, you know, things have just been getting better all the time. And I think his main point with Against the Grain, put in a variety of complicated ways we won't be able to get into, was that the advent of agriculture was a catastrophe for the vast majority of human beings. Um, it meant, and this is important and this is good, and we couldn't have gotten to where we are today, which I believe is vastly better than either hunter-gathering or early agriculture. Um we couldn't have gotten to where we are today without as many human beings as, as we had. But what agriculture led to initially was incredible suffering for the vast majority of people so that a small minority could benefit. And that's pretty much what civilization was since we started farming. Certainly by uh, 9,000 years ago, is we all agree that more and more sedentary populations were becoming a thing. Civilizations where we're expanding, that sort of thing. Agricultural civilizations were expanding. But it's been that way from then pretty much until like the 1800s in most of the world. And in still in some parts of the world today, agricultural life is a horrific drudgery. And I think we were kind of uh, misled in the English speaking world because in the English speaking world, uh, sharing this with really just the Netherlands. 
agricultural life has been a bit nicer for a bit longer. So maybe for the past 300 years, in parts of the United Kingdom, uh, parts of the Netherlands, and much of the United States, it was possible to have a much more well-rounded, much more pleasant agricultural life uh, than it was for all of human history. And what really launched me on this topic uh, for this podcast is this book I've been, I'm just finishing up now, called The Discovery of France by Graham Robb. It is a... They finally found it? They did. They found it. <laughs> Fascinating book. So I'd always known that France was sort of a catch-up country when it comes to industrialization. Like what China's doing has been doing over the past 30 years, France did in the second half of the 19th century, catching up with uh, Britain in terms of industrialization. But I hadn't realized just the, the, the extent to which France was Paris and its environs, and then a whole bunch of other regions that weren't really necessarily connected at all. There were flourishing urban environments on the territory of France, uh, and sort of a lot of the history of France that I've been familiar with was sort of Louis XIV and those afterwards sort of crushing all those other urban areas. But what I hadn't really appreciated as much until I read this book was just how much of the territory of France, which is a very large country, was incredibly isolated, incredibly agricultural, and even in some ways almost prehistoric in the way that people were living well into the 1800s. But a lot of the world would have been like that, like the vast majority of people, maybe 90% even more, would have worked in agriculture? Absolutely. I had always sort of envisioned agriculture as it, at least in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, was like, oh, well, it's, it's, it was getting better as long, you know, at the same pace that everything else was getting better. And what was sort of so shocking to me about this book, that even France, this is, you know, one of the great powers that was the, the last great power that posed a serious threat to the British Empire before it knit the world together. Uh, even in France, into like the 1860s, you had people who were regularly not capable of feeding themselves. Uh, and it, it, it just, it's like, that's what agricultural life was for all human beings for thousands of years. And it's one winter away from disaster. Yes, exactly. One would, there, there's this great passage in this book that I, this is talking, I think about like the 1880s in France talking about how, yeah, uh, Human hibernation was a physical and economic necessity. Lowering the metabolic rate prevented hunger from exhausting supplies. So even if it was a normal winter and a normal harvest, now this is not every part of France. There were absolutely parts of France, even in the 1700s, where you were, or the 1600s, where you could have prosperous farmers. But the main experience was even when things were going well, you had to be very careful not to move around too much during the winter. Or you'd run out of food. I think it's, it's really worth emphasizing because there's just there's such a strong vein of romanticization uh, on the right and on the left, sort of conservatives or or left wing. Oh, we got to get back to the land. Da, 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 da. The noble peasant farmer. Yes, yes. Uh, not that there isn't nobility there, but it, it's just this idea that it's something we should all strive for, aspire to, or the more conservative-coded idea that, oh, things were better back when, blah, 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 blah. We were purer humans back then. Exactly. The experience in the United States is very different from most of the rest of the world because thanks to disease and genocide, we cleared out everybody who was here um, and managed to benefit a great amount from the way that the indigenous had uh, crafted the place for agriculture and support people very quickly and with vast amounts of land. So you actually did have, you know, the, the myths of the prosperous farmer on their own land reading Plato and, and uh, were, I mean, exaggerated for sure. Uh, and often but also learning from other Western farmers that have perished before and you learn, I'll not do that. Yes. That's uh, often forgotten. Yes. The, the mythical gentleman farmer was most often aided by slavery in the United States. But Manifest destiny? Yeah, uh, that can be oversold, but more of it existed in the United States than existed anywhere else 
uh, some parts of the UK, some parts of the Netherlands. But it did become then a very romanticized but also dangerous ideal with uh, a lot of Mein Kampf talking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's underemphasized that a lot of what Hitler was talking about, the Lebensstrom, and that he wanted the living space, was inspired by the way that uh, the United States was able to spread out over a depopulated continent. Uh, and he wanted that. He wanted that to Germany's east. Uh, so, yes, an incredibly dangerous idea that it's just like, but what they're romanticizing is 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 nuts. You know, it, it, it's funny. This is like a very neoliberal coded thing to do. Uh, and I'm drifting away from neoliberalism or what have you. But I do think it's still very worth emphasizing that as frustrating as things are in this modern world, as 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 many of the 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 dials that need to be tweaked and turned in different ways, it is so much better than anything that has come before. Uh, and it, I, that's worth spending an episode emphasizing. The James C. Scott's book is interesting. I was reading some of the, the critiques, and I think he's absolutely on point, what he's talking about with the um, just horrors of being forced into agriculture. Uh, it, it's not 100% certain, but it does seem very likely that most people who started farming were forced into agriculture by more powerful people. Whereas the, the prior view was that, oh, we just chose to do it. Um, Are also uh, hunter-gatherers that sort of had seeds that they were, say, eating, <laughs> naturally were growing closer to where they were at and they were more prosperous. So those people would do better and outcompete other hunter-gatherers and they become civilization. Yeah. So I think James C. Scott does a great job of destroying that idea by just simply pointing out how much less healthy every agricultural worker was. And this is in the, in the, in the fossil record or what have you, that yet people started settled down for agriculture. They got shorter. They got malnourished. They got... The bra uh, their brains shrank. Wow, yeah. I did, yeah the, so the bra our brains would be smaller than a hunter-gatherer's brain, for instance? I think that's very possible. The quality of life for everybody declined. There was massively more life that allowed an aristocracy and a ruling class to be built on top of it. But the vast majority of these many, many, many more people were suffering. Uh, and it was something, it seems very likely that agriculture was something that most people were forced into after having been taken out of a life they may have preferred or liked better. I saw some critiques that I think of James C. Scott's work that I think makes sense, um, that uh, he shares this problem with Jared Diamond as another example of a anthropologist who really loves this idea that hunter-gatherers are smarter, better, faster, happier, and, and more, more pleasant than us or something like that. And I think that also is kind of nonsense. I think an agricultural lifestyle was horrific and uh, hunter-gatherer existence was also horrific, just led by dramatically fewer people, you know, and it's, so I think, you know, like, I don't know, Rory, like, I could be delusional about this, but I sometimes, certainly when I was younger, like, imagined that, like, oh, maybe I was, like, well-suited to, like, a, like, a chaotic hunter-gatherer exists, you know, I'm, like, I'm tall, I was relatively athletic, I, you know, maybe that would have been good for me, so, like, Maybe, you know, as a big dude, like I'd have had a fun life, like raping and killing people before I was murdered at 35. Um, but like. But why are you big? It's because you were well nourished. Exactly. That is also a very good point. Uh, but, you know, you'd be on average. Right. So like, you know, maybe I'd be a big guy at like five, six or something or like five, two or four feet, I don't know, whatever. Um, so the like, uh, but like I pro almost certainly would have known my mom. Like, um, almost certainly. And so the, the hunter gathering, just, just, I briefly looked at this though. Of course I got this from a very neoliberal source, our world and data, which is famous for being like, oh, everything's rainbows and puppy dogs. Everything's great. Is that the thing that says, um, uh, per nations that have like a corrugated iron roof are doing much better than the people that aren't. So it's actually a sign of wealth, these shanty towns. Well, is it not, you know, are they, are they wrong? <laughs> I, I think that I think that uh, some of their uh, emphases and some of their approaches uh, now strike me as a little a little uh, over optimistic. But I mean, they're not necessarily wrong. But our world and data estimates that 26 percent of people died in infancy 
and 48% of people died before reaching puberty. And then if you manage to have this lovely, diverse, big-brained life uh, grazing on roots and berries and killing rabbits and, and, and horses and, and, you know, uh, occasionally picking up a grain here and there, um, you would be swiftly abandoned uh, at the point at which you stopped being able to contribute to the hunter-gatherer band, which would probably be in your uh, early 40s, if you were lucky. So yeah, I would be uh, my fun hunter-gatherer existence. You would be the Joe Biden of the group? Yes, my fun hunter-gatherer existence, uh, if everything went really well for me, um, uh, would be pretty much over at this point uh, in my life. Uh, so yeah, hunter-gathering, no bueno. I am not one of those people, because there are certainly people who, uh, you know, people the paleo diet or this, that, the other thing. People, are... Yeah, paleo diets tend to just be a bit made up because it involves a lot of fruits and vegetables that wouldn't have existed at the time <laughs> well there you are also have you ever seen what an apple looked like when it was natural it looked more like a gooseberry it's a really strange thing and that that, that that's a really important point too that so much of what we just consider to be normal healthy natural food is completely artificial exactly and this book makes makes that makes that point uh really uh you know france is famous for its regional cuisines and it's 256 separate kinds of cheeses and this is really and this book is like yeah that was all invented in the 19th century <laughs> like, like most all, countries it is mostly just there maybe a little bit early it is most of that uh supposedly diverse regional french cuisine was invented for the benefit of english tourists in the 1700s and 1800s like it it, it, it just wasn't like there was a lot less there there uh there was and there was a lot more suffer and i think that's the mistake you know people are envisioning like oh if we all just sort of lived on the land and well first off if we all just sort of lived on the land you'd need about six billion less humans because uh, organic uh this is getting into other topics but like the kind of organic growth and and uh, special kinds of chemical free stuff that everybody seems to like right now i mean don't get me wrong. I'm sure the Netherlands is figuring out how to do it. Uh, Netherlands agriculture <laughs> is this like miraculous thing that uh, I keep hearing about. I remember about. seeing a um, historian uh, picking apart, uh, not to have uh, spoilers, but at the end of Gladiator, there's a famous uh, scene where he's walking through a field of wheat. Um, this historian pointed out that in Roman times, the wheat was much wilder, so it would have been horrible patches and weird heights and stuff. It would have just not looked very appetizing. I but, love that know. shot. I tried to recreate that oh, yeah, in one a, of my early videos. Shot. It's beautiful. But I think the point that I was making that like maybe the Netherlands is figuring it out because they're like truly living in the next century in terms of agricultural innovation. <laughs> uh, but generally speaking, at, with current technology, if everybody were to purchase all their foods at the food at the Whole Foods level of organic. Uh, you know, we, we, we need dramatically more land than we have. And, uh, you know, billions of people would just have to die. Um, so it, it, some of this, this hankering for, uh, an earlier pre-modern time isn't just delusional. It's, it's, it's profoundly anti-human. But it does seem like it may have been better than being sedentary and farming your entire life. Oh, being hunter-gatherers? Yes, I think that's I think that's a case that James C. Scott makes. I'm not 100% sure I'm convinced. But what he has convinced me of, as has Graham Robb and other reading over the years, is that, man, agriculture is a lifestyle. So It was very hard work. It is incredibly <laughs> difficult. And certainly... And the yields are so small compared to modern yields. Yeah. And, and it's another thing where government help is tremendously important to making it a uh, a positive lifestyle. There are, uh, I have met uh, happy, very prosperous gentlemen farmers, for lack of a better term, in, in the United States. I know they're present across Europe, across the world now, but the degree of ingenuity that goes into that, like you can't be a high-tech modern farmer without literacy, and mass literacy is like a past 200 years thing. Uh, but with, also farms are incredibly dangerous. I don't know about America, but it's like one of the highest mortality rates um, before you go into crazy things like bomb disposal and stuff, and also very high suicide rates as well, and very little money to be made in it. 
Absolutely. Hard work, isolation, uh, the... And I think the vast majority of countries have huge subsidies. I think only New Zealand does. I'm sure New Zealand does. It was, I think, famous for te- or for a decade. There was like, they just said, we're not going to do any subsidies. And then agriculture completely collapsed. And then it regrew. And it's a quite a uh, capitalistic huh. uh, form of uh, agriculture. I think they have a, a certain breed of sheep where you just leave it because there's very little money in sheep. And if it, it quite often it'll turn back up within a year and then you can <laughs> shave it. So it's a, a self-sufficient sheep, but I think most countries think America's famous for, isn't it, corn and peanuts are heavily subsidized? Everything is heavily subsidized. The, 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 I really want to read more about that New Zealand example. I've never heard of that. That sounds fascinating. Uh, the... Well, because it was one of the arguments against Brexit. They're like, oh, we can do X, Y, Z. And you're like, yeah, but New Zealand did one thing. It didn't do everything at once. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I have to look into that. That's fascinating. Uh, so the United States, Europe, Japan, really every successful agricultural country has tremendous farm subsidies. Um, the, uh, the EU was basically a big farm subsidy for a long time. Of course, it still is. The common agricultural policy is... Uh, a... And that's why Britain, before it left, got a really good rebate because France <laughs> got a, France is making a lot out of it. And Margaret Thatcher is like, this isn't fair. So they're like, right, you can get a big rebate too. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, the agriculture uh, there was this book i read a couple of years back called how asia works uh and it was interesting talking about how successful land reform had been in a few countries uh taiwan china japan uh and south korea and how unsuccessful it had been in many places because the government didn't give the support that was necessary if the government is there to provide materials financing uh, you know, still a loan, but a loan that's not on a, you know, injurious rate. Um, uh, financing, uh, education, part of the the ability for there to be uh, successful, super independent uh, gentleman farmer types in the United States with their guns is because of the centuries of investment that U.S. agricultural universities have done in creating a lot of these agricultural products, a lot of uh, these breeds of, of animals that could be particularly prosperous in finding out the appropriate methods. So in Asia, the, you know, the countries that succeed with land reform are people that are like, yes, we're going to give people plots of land, and then we are going to teach them how to do things, give them money how to do things, and then yes, you can have somewhat China prosperous. China did horrendously get it wrong in the 60s. Yes, the collective uh, the uh, collectivization uh, led to mass mass famine, and one of the first things that they did in the 1970s, even before the special economic zones became such a big deal for manufacturing, was they allowed uh, farmers to sell their. Uh, I think after they, I think the, the they had a certain amount they were obligated to give the government, and then they were allowed to put the excess on the market, and that was sort of what launched. Uh, the Chinese uh, miracle. Because initially, China couldn't really sell a lot of its industrial goods. It was first selling its industrial goods to the farmers that they had allowed to start making money. Uh, was that Taiwan? I could be wrong about that. Uh, but uh, it's a great book, How Asia Works. I highly recommend it. But also, rice is just an incredible um, plant in general. It's the fact you can store it, which is, it's seen as wheat and rice. You can store, which then means you have a form of value. So that's where kings and emperors and stuff start from. But rice, you can double crop it so you can get like a mini crop the same cool. year. And then you're also able to um, collect it at different altitudes so you can collect it a little bit at a time. So it's also why you have massive populations in Asia because rice is just incredible. Well, it's also incredibly work intensive to produce. It the, is, the, but the, all the... agriculture is. It, it exactly exactly the but it, it it it's sort of the illustration of that sort of catch twenty two. It's like you need more people to make more agriculture to make more people. Da, 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 and and I think also the that's also where a lot of the what we know as the Vikings came from. Before they used to just use the um, 
what was it the egyptian plow which by the name would suit siltier ground but it meant the more northern you got it didn't really work so there was a new plow invented that then massively blew up the populations in northern europe and then because of their laws that basically says the first son gets everything a lot of these second sons then went uh, raping and pillaging yeah it's uh malthusian traps uh I think that I get this wrong. No, it's, it's John or Thomas Malthus. I think I got this wrong in an earlier podcast. Regardless, it was a, a British guy who just talked about the incredible misery that more population brings, and that was that one. That was a lot of human history uh, for about That's nine thousand years. There was the years. big no more than one billion movements. The what? Do you remember a lot of people uh, theorized around the turn of the nineteenth century? Populations beyond one billion. We don't want that. That's a, a terrible thing, and we can't cope any more than one billion. Well, where we seem to be uh, rocketing towards eight or nine at this point, and uh, we yes, seem, it I is think, crazy. I think we're doing pretty well, honestly. Um, I know that's not a popular. They think it'll level out at around nine to ten. I don't think we're going to make ten. I think because ten is ten is what they expect, but it's it's uh, the. It's been a pet peeve of mine for a while that uh, people, there's some UN projection that's like, Nigeria is going to have a billion people by 2100. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Well, I think their uh, birth rates have started to already come down. It used to be exactly. like eight and now it's down to six. Exactly. And I, I, I have somewhat uh, smugly watched those projections fall over the past decade. Uh, and they will continue to do so because it's not, because Africa is not different from every other uh, country in the uh, continent in the world, uh, where when people reach a certain level of uh, affluence and a certain level of aspiration, they stop having so many kids. Uh, so yeah, I don't think we're going to hit ten billion. But uh, but one group of people, I think this book wants to um, recharacterize would be the barbarian. Yeah, that is a fascinating. Just talking about how the barbarians are also dependent on agriculture uh, to an extent as well. You can't have those extraordinary steppe nomad cultures obviously genghis khan is the one that comes to mind the most but this was a dynamic going back for as long as there was agricultural civilization but you can't actually have those massive nomadic societies of that size and power without agricultural communities to uh, predate on to uh, to steal stuff from uh, that was another revelation of the book that I found pretty pretty interesting well, i think they were also saying that you could also then hire these people as protection so there's a symbiotic relationship. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I don't know. It's it's just it it's just another aspect that it reinforces the miracle of the world that we live in. Uh, Malthus, the British vicar, who is just like everybody dies, and war is inevitable. War and famine are an inevitable result of of uh, greater populations. Uh, he's famously famously wrong, but for most of the history of agriculture, he was entirely correct. And it is miraculous that we seem to have slipped the bounds of that to the point where, and that is worth emphasizing, like we may poison ourselves with the carbon. Uh, that that seems to, you know, the Hawaii wildfires emphasize again uh, the possibility of destroying the world that way. But it's just stunning to me how Malthus was wrong. Uh, the people you were talking about who wanted to limit population to a billion were wrong. Uh, Paul Ehrlich, uh, the famous 1970s population bomb guy, the, the most effective new Cold Warrior we ever had, the guy who ended the Cold War with China uh, before it even started by uh, getting them to institute the one-child policy. Uh, the, the, the idea that we were going to run out of food or we were going to run out of this mineral or that mineral, it's really not the case. Like We're now to a point where we're actually poisoning our environment. Like We've become so big and so powerful that it's it's almost like uh, it's just our breathing of the carbon dioxide that's the problem. But we've also got the tools to solve that too. Um, and it it's it is miraculous, and it's so frustrating to me when I hear people condemn all of this uh, and and pretend that um, what we had a hundred years ago or five hundred years ago or ten thousand years ago was better. It wasn't. Uh, like, we live in most of Utopia, Rory. It's just, you know, you just got to switch the dial. A couple of the dials need to be, uh, uh, you know, 
fine-tuned a little bit and uh things well, even compared to emperors and kings of old they seem to all die quite painfully being told some sort of nonsense about letting of uh, pus or drink some mercury oh yeah oh yeah and uh i'm just reading these books now and just the what cuisine was like in the 1800s and it, it's kind of fascinating that people were beginning to develop tastes in the united states we have this image that we 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 finally got fine dining from the Europeans in the in the in the eighteen hundreds. You know that's when we finally started learning how to how to do stuff uh, and 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 consume food like a civilized person. But then you just look at the menus of like what we thought was fine dining in the in the eighteen hundreds, or like uh, let alone we we just did a couple episodes talking about the Tudors, talking about fifteen hundreds royalty. So I've been reading a lot about just what they would be eating, and it's just like. It's just foul. Like, this is literally what kings are eating. And it's just like, well, we've got a pudding with eels in it. And it's just like... And there would have been a lot of awful. It was seen as um, a very... Uh, uh, the best bits were kept for the royalty, apparently. So there would have been a lot of awful and strangeness. Like intestines and such? Oh, yeah, yeah. Apparently that's something that uh, has become less popular because it's hard to refrigerate the industrial process. But it would have been a lot of quite uh, boring and bland, but what we would consider to be disgusting by modern standards. <laughs> so pr- prior to the 19th century, there was uh, there was certainly luxury eating. You know, the the, the wealthy, uh, the much smaller wealthy elites had uh, chefs and and uh, you know more rarefied uh, ways of eating. But God, it was it was worse and and less interesting than. What I can get going into any convenience store uh, in yeah. the United States, though, dramatically so, uh, and 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 less healthy as well. And most of the rest of the 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 population everywhere in the world had to walk slowly during winter, so they didn't burn so many calories that they ran out of food. And like that is just a terrible existence, and one that it's very hard for me to to be nostalgic about. I, I almost think that it, it's. I do love the idea of the wilderness. I do love the idea, of especially uh, something about the forties, Rory. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I do like the idea of spending le- a little less time in cities. Not quite. Not Have quite. you got into gardening yet? Uh, no, but I've got some plants that are still alive. Uh, a couple years later, You're getting which is, there. Yeah, that's a big. It's a big step for me. Uh, but I, I find myself, you know. Like I, I get the 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 lust for nature, but I and I think it is, it's a fascinating vision of what we are co- capable of now in terms of self sufficiency in an agricultural context. But it's only you know I watch these guys on TikTok and just like I bought my plot of land, and I, but like none of that is possible without the incredible crush of population and technology that we have right now. But to bring it back to how many people worked in agriculture, it's like, how hard is it to find someone that works in agriculture now? You're having to go to TikTok to find them. Yeah, it's It's a tiny percentage of the population is able to feed all of the population. It's extraordinary how much better things are. Um, And they think we're on the verge of another um, agricultural revolution. So the idea of like nanobots being able to laser... Um, pests rather than using chemicals to kill them. So it would mean the plants wouldn't have so much uh, byproducts of pesticides in the plants. The Netherlands again, isn't it? They, they, I bet they're doing it. I bet they're doing that. <laughs> I think that's still theorized, but you're able to do a lot more with satellites and comparing different uh, years to others. Sure, and you know, vertical farming. Uh, the, the Israelis have pioneered a kind of drip agriculture that uses dramatically less uh, water. So you can now envision all, even though, well, I think one of the most extraordinary things, and don't quote me on this, but I believe I read somewhere, is this just the United States? Definitely true in the United States, but might actually be true worldwide, where despite the fact that we are feeding seven or eight times more people than we were a hundred years ago, we're doing it on less land. Oh, yeah, yeah, becoming a lot more efficient with land. Yeah. But as you say, farmers are a lot more educated now. There's a lot more going to university to learn about um, biodiversity, um, crop rotations, all this carry on. It's a lot more scientific. 
And yeah, again, like that's the the romanticized. Uh, it's a big part of U.S. political culture. Be like Thomas Jefferson, the educated, you know, farmer uh, out uh, out figuring things out and and reading philosophy. Uh, but again, that's only possible because of millennia of suffering and uh, the and it, it's. Uh, I, I think I've read this in one of the reviews of James C. Scott's uh, thing. It's just it's kind of extraordinary that that uh, agriculture has both managed to be this incredible curse on mankind, but also, sorry, settled agriculture, like, like one of the best things that's ever happened to us. Uh, we're only now beginning to reap the benefits of thousands of years of suffering. <laughs> it's, it's, yes. <laughs> it is It is quite something. And so recent, just the stories, the stories in this book, uh, it just, just the way that people lived so so recently uh but even my father would have when as a child they would have only bought what was in season and the idea of even considering what's in season nowadays is a it's like a fairy tale i don't know man i was i was actually thinking i should do more of that like just get like a little chart for the kitchen because i had i don't i have no concept of when anything is in season but that's what i mean you don't have to you just go to the store and it's there but I'm I'm used to complaining a lot about produce in the United States. Okay. So in and this is very true uh, in Turkey and I'd imagine in much of Europe, uh, the produce is just infinitely better than it is in the United States. To use a Android and Apple analogy, uh, the uh, America does things more like Android, which is it waits to see if something goes wrong. And then it'll take it off the store while Apple and the EU have to prove that food is safe. So it's a very safety first way of doing things. So, yes, the standard of food is a lot higher from what I'm being told uh, than European Union to America. Yeah. And I think that's very just, you know, in the United States, like, oh, we've molded corn syrup into something else. Here you are. Yes. Uh, also, there's a lot of trans fats in America. Hold, I've heard. I thought, the, I thought those might have finally been... Well, that's one of those things. To say it doesn't have trans fats is sort of a terrifying thing. I think that's been... I think I feel like trans fats might have been fitted out over the past decade, but I'm not entirely certain about that. Uh, but the it's uh, not just the, the corn syrup or what have you, just basic produce. Uh, it just tastes better in... I don't know if we just export it from further away in the United States or like we just, you know, just... So I'm used to, like, I can't eat tomatoes in the United States anymore because they're so much better in Turkey or whatever. But I went it's to the you. grocery store and bought some strawberries kind of randomly and, like, bit into one of them and was like, oh, my God, this is this is marvelous. This is like a Turkish strawberry, which basically means that, oh, okay, so apparently uh, late July, strawberries are actually in season. And I could probably have that experience with more of my food if I, uh, you know, actually had a sense of when the seasons were. So agricultural knowledge is valuable, and uh, perhaps we should all have more of it, seeing as how many of our ancestors died for it. What was your favorite part of the book? Uh, which book? I, I'm uh, the Against the Green. Gosh, it has been a while since I've read Against the Green, but the thing that's always stuck with me is just the start-stop way that civilization had uh developed and he's got these chapters uh i think it's towards the end where he's talking about the early development of agricultural societies and just and i think this is very instructive for people who fantasize about some kind of collapse or some kind of shift back to the land or more natural more human-centered approach to things and just the manufacturing matter of fact way that he described or described other anthropologists describing and yeah, uh, in this particular section of Mesopotamia, uh, there were roughly 90% fewer people alive uh, 50 years later. Just the boom and bust of agriculture? Well, it was just what would happen when a particular agricultural society was uh, crushed by barbarians or fell apart for whatever reason. And it's just, it's just a, the, just the matter of factness. It's like the, the incredible suffering in those few sentences there, just for like, oh yeah, you know, um, and you know, a lot of that is people choosing not to reproduce, but uh, a lot of it is just people starving to death in piles of corpses. And uh, I thought it was just the, the tenuous nature of early agricultural life was another horror 
uh, about it. I think you said earlier, you know, you were, you were only, you could only, you know, one bad winter or something along those lines. Uh, but these systems, uh, I think people talk about now in sort of disaster contexts or concerns like, oh, well, everything's so carefully based. If, if New York City uh, didn't get trucks for five days, everybody would starve to death. And that's like this um, uh, description of this, this dangerous vulnerability. And I think that's important to think about. That's important to talk about. We should. Which COVID illustrated. Absolutely. That's important. Uh, well, I lived in New York City for the two months, the first two months of COVID, and I hadn't, I, 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 I didn't miss any meals. Regardless, though, these are supply chains, important, important considerations or what have you. But I think what people who make that case leave out is that, that that was always the case. Like there was never a point at which um, it, it's actually, it became weird and strange and noteworthy in the 1600s and 1700s. And I think it was the Netherlands was the first place that actually managed to do this to get to the point where actually we can pretty reliably feed everybody year to year. Um we can that we can do that because if the harvest fails here, we'll be able to export it from somewhere else. Da, da, da. So I think there's this this view that the um, tenuousness, the the what's the word, the vulnerability of our supply chains is some kind of modern problem. Yeah, it is not. It is a constant, constant human problem. I'm not making the case here for just in time manufacturing. I think we've gone too far in that direction in certain respects and. Smart people are thinking about it and correcting for that as we speak. But um, we've always been incredibly vulnerable. And we're, we're in, and this is another, I think I've been speaking up for government more and more uh, recently, but this is another thing worth emphasizing is that like we are so dependent on so many things going right. Like, Can you imagine modern farming in any country without uh, the national weather services or you know being able to predict or well, manage anything big bottleneck for agriculture currently is oil because mm. you know tractors and considering how many plastics and the pesticides are all oil based so it's a a terrifying thing if there was ever to be not enough oil with our current agricultural setup i mean absolutely we've been we've been raised to a higher 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 and higher level of production and there's even a food grade oil. Quite often, apples are covered in it to keep them uh, lasting longer. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, God. that's pretty scary. That doesn't make me feel very good. <laughs> but I think the book kind of we're sort of portraying it as um, hunter gatherers were a terrible place to live. But I think he's trying to point out the opposite: is that um, living in a agriculture society was terrible and hunter-gatherers was better than we've been uh, led to believe but one sort of criticism of civilization with um, increased agriculture was slavery he says you don't really find slavery in hunter-gatherers possibly because as you say everybody was needed and as soon as they weren't they were left out to pasture so there wasn't really a, a want to have another mouth to feed but it does seem to be uh, a negative side effect of these uh, large stockpiles of grain yeah, scale. Uh, you need scale to be brutal. Uh, if if you if you need every person in a small unit, um, and you're stuck with the people you have, you're gonna tend to treat them better. Um, if you're a sort of big man in a small group, or, or big big person in a small group, uh, whereas if you get to the scale of thousands, make hundreds happy to make the rest of the thousands uh, absolutely miserable, and make yourself happiest of all. Uh, it's a human human condition. Human condition. Uh, it's it's not it's not great, but it has the potential. I I would argue it is great. Like what we've managed to do all over the world as human beings is extraordinary, and we are like so close. I think to it being even better. Uh, and uh, I think understanding that there is very little in where we came from, uh, that is to be idolized or, or sought after, uh, is, uh, is important. Um, so we can truly appreciate just how much nicer it is now. What agricultural policies could we employ to provide food for everyone in the world? Cause it's sadly, there's a lot of the world still not doing well. Well, that's, uh, 
That is a very technical question, Rory, that I am not equipped to answer at this moment. I do know that there are a lot of downfalls to the way that food aid is currently practiced, uh, the degree of dependency that we've created. Uh, but I think what is largely true uh, is that most famine, most actual examples of people starving to death over the past 50 years have not been, after the past century, well, yeah, over the past century, really, have not been questions of shortages or ecological disaster or that sort of thing. They've well, I'm thinking of the Soviet famines and then the Chinese famine. These were all political choices and a willingness to believe flawed science because of uh, it promoted, you know, Soviet ideals over Western. Uh, the the classic ideal of famine in uh, my uh, formative years in the 1980s was a horrific famine that was uh, occurring in Ethiopia. That too was a was a communist leaning government. Uh, but one of the great horrors of uh, 2020 uh, was the another Ethiopian leader using famine as a weapon. And Abiy Ahmed uh, was a uh, neoliberal in good standing until the fall of 2020. Uh, so it's, it's political choices that lead to real hunger. There is an interesting distinction that I was thinking about a lot with, uh, with this book, um, and I think it comes up a lot. I remember, recall, hopefully less of an issue, but I recall reading a lot about it in the Indian context. There's a distinction between abst actually starving to death, like absolute starvation uh, that is experienced in mostly political situations when uh, this is something I'm looking into right now. It seems as though the uh, people of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh might be being starved by the uh, Azeris right now. Um, that is a, a, a pretty dire example of, uh, of starvation being used for political purposes. But there's a distinction between actual physical starvation and just a general level of malnutrition. And I know in the Indian context, this could have been a decade back, was talking about Indian farmers or Indian, um, just more rural people in India who were prioritizing other things over the basic nutrition that their families needed. And it was, I, I remember reading that and be like, oh, how horrible that someone is focusing on education or, or gas rather than feeding their kids or something like that. And then it was interesting to see that like in this book. I mean, that was the European normal uh, up until the, the 19th century. And I think the problems of today are more malnutrition or bad nutrition uh, than they are abject starvation, which is an incredible testament to how well we've organized uh, things in the modern era, that, that you know, we've got eight or nine billion people and uh, very few people are starving. Well, they say there's nearly more obesity than starvation. What a what a miracle. What a miracle. And why would you want to go back to an earlier time, an earlier approach to things uh, where, where starvation was more of an issue than obesity? And I'm not saying that there are problems with, I have not looked seriously at the food complex in the United States in a number of years, but I think that's probably something that I need to take a look at. Um, because it's pretty clear to me that we don't need to just, you know, as a guy who's trying to lose a little weight, it's just like, do I need to have this many options that are terrible for me? Like at my fingertips. And I was one of those guys, uh, who was like, oh, how dare mayor Bloomberg. There was a mayor of New York who famously, uh, tried to get, uh, just get Seven Eleven or someone to stop serving uh sodas that were 64 ounce giant gulps or something along those lines i think lines. that's over a liter if i last time i checked those big gulps yes <laughs> and i was among the people who was like oh gosh what a what a orwellian what a fascist how could he dare do that and it's just like actually maybe we don't need to organize everything in our uh in our waking life around uh better absorbing uh the products of corn subsidies it's just below a liter, 950. Well, there you go. Then it's pretty healthy. <laughs> and everybody should have that much root beer every, uh, every morning. But as an American, do you feel America might have reached peak obesity? or? Well, geez, like the, have you heard about these, these drugs, the Ozempic? 
uh, drugs? I haven't, no. Oh, it's, uh, it's apparently there is now a miracle drug. Um, it's uh, that apparently you just get an injection and in a couple of years it'll be available in pill forms and you just stop wanting to eat. Um, it's funny, I've read enough science fiction that I'm like, this sounds this sounds a lot like the beginning of a zombie film, you know? Like, yeah, it, 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 it has got a plot to uh, at it, least a TV series. It sure does. So I, I'm I'm not gonna run out there and start popping these pills myself. I'll give it I'll give it five ten years. Uh, but I am just sort of like uh, you know, I'm, personally, I'm still very much into self reliance and whatnot. But I I'm on this of I'm constantly you know on a on a sort of weight loss kick, but. Uh, this time around, I'm kind of like, yeah, I got, I got to make it work. I got to do it myself, or I'm just gonna have to start popping these pills and turn into a zombie. Reading the, these books has shown it's like the concept of obesity never made sense for a human. It was always eat everything you can. <laughs> so it's hard to comprehend in a world where no, 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 you should just eat this amount. <laughs> but it does seem like there is a um, medical intervention that makes that happen now, uh, which is pretty. I think they talk about, uh, someone was talking about watching the Oscars this year, and it's like everybody, it's a very distinct look. It's like everyone has like Ozempic face because they've just all okay. of a sudden become- It's the new thing I have to look out much, for. Much, uh, much thinner. Um, if it does not, as many, 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 many miracle drugs have, have found to be in the past, if it does not turn out five to 10 years from now, it makes you grow a, 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 a ten, an 11th finger out of your nostril or whatever. Um, it is uh, very likely to be revolutionary uh, on government budgets. You know, the United States government pays a tremendous amount uh, for the treatment of diabetes. Uh, if uh, people just didn't want to eat too much all the time, uh, which seems to be what these drugs uh, promise, then um, then uh, that would be a lot of healthcare costs uh, that just disappear uh, from the U.S. economy. Then you're talking about stuff like food deserts, which is sort of where there isn't healthy food within walking distance in a country like America. No, it's funny. I think, well, uh, I'm speaking from New York City, which is not a... Um, One of the most walkable cities in America. Yes, it's very, uh, it is fairly privileged It's no place. Houston, Texas. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, I and I live in Harlem, which was traditionally a less, um, less advantaged area. And it's interesting because I kind of feel like uh, I'm seeing the the results of people really caring about food deserts five, ten years ago. So there's actually uh, a bunch of grocery stores around me and like really nice grocery stores. Like there's now actually a Whole Foods, but there are branches of uh, grocery stores that are not um, Whole Foods cost and what have you, but that like have kind of like that level of quality or at least aspirations to that level of branding and store organization and variety of things and actually one of one of the grocery stores i sometimes pop into it's not my preferred store uh is actually in a housing project which i which i was i'm just kind of impressed by new york i don't know i haven't been out to east new york or brownsville but in my experience uh in in harlem where the new york is not currently experiencing a food desert problem so you feel america might be on the mend from becoming more um have a better appetite, a healthier appetite? Rory, I think things are getting better all the time. All the time, everywhere. Hard to predict the ins and outs of what will come, but we will keep trying to do that here at the More Freedom Foundations. Well, thank you very much for listening, and enjoy a lovely meal, and don't feel guilty. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the U.S. Can Do Better. And music provided by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>